0: Welcome to the Beekeeper's Corner Podcast. January 31st, 2021, episode 187, Extraction Action. Greetings one and all. Welcome to another installment of the Beekeeper's Corner Podcast. I am Kevin England. And I'm back again with a more traditional effort for this go-round, and I have a good show in store for you today. It's a Sunday afternoon as I'm sitting down to record this, and we are seeing a little bit of winter wonderland outside. There's a storm warning outside, and we're looking at a foot or so of snow on the overnight, and it seems like I'll be spending a little quality time with my Husqvarna snowblower in the next 24 hours. We've not had a measurable amount of snow here in New Jersey for quite some time. And as by recollection, our snowfall was next to nil last year. I don't even know if I used the snowblower once. As a beekeeper, it's all good. One thing we do in the winter is talk about weather. So far, it's been a reasonable winter, one that a beekeeper can appreciate. Ideally, the highs in the 40s are good as they fall into that Goldilocks principle of not too cold, not too hot. Lately, though, it's been pretty darn cold in the morning with temperatures on the overnight in the teens. Our weather station says 14 degrees last night, or negative 10 for our Celsius friends. That's a little cold, and we like to see it cold enough to keep the bees dormant, but not so cold that the bees use a lot of stored energy to get through the days until spring. I suppose it's boring to talk about the weather, but the truth is, like pilots, most beekeepers I know are obsessed with the weather. Our show is going to start off with a potpourri of round tables, and then I have prepared features on high product extracts for two of the three topics to follow. In this go-around, I'll be talking about a way to solve lackluster beekeeping. The answer is probably not what you expect. We'll prove that unicorns do exist. A reader-supplied tip for melting crystallized honey. I'll mention a new beverage line on the market. Talk about a fortunate perk of being a beekeeper through reflection. After round tables, I'll do a deep dive on preparing propolis, cover a study on negative impacts of neonics on circadian rhythms, and then we'll break some bread, some bee bread, that is, We'll send you to the house with the local high report. Yep, I'm just worn out. I'm going through the recount. So what say ye? Shall we get started? Off to round table number one. Round table number one. This one I call against the averages. It's a follow-up to seriously. I've been reflecting on my commentary in a recent episode about working with the averages for my management practices. To give it context, I'm referring to the practice of sampling some hives and assuming that the rest are similar. There are three ways to go when it comes to doing a mite management program. You treat on a planned schedule. You test every hive and treat what qualifies to be treated. And you test a percentage of hives that you have and treat based on the averages. I'm not a proponent of teaching others to treat every hive on a regularly scheduled basis with no monitoring. If you can avoid the cost of buying treatments and undesired consequence of treating when it's not required, then why do that? As to the two that are left, test every hive method and or sample some of the hive's method. Ultimately, it informs your decisions which is better. The obvious answer is sample every hive and, if warranted, treat it. So why? Why is it that a lot of beekeepers are not testing every hive on a prescribed schedule? I would venture to say that most, they don't have time. Some might fess up and simply tell us they do not want to commit to that much effort. So time and effort, to common reasons, that's to blame. I'm going to be provocative and suggest the answer is something altogether different. The proper answer is, for those beekeepers, it's you have too many hives. That's the answer. You know, that little nagging voice in my head tells me that on so many occasions. It's why I, Kevin, am an average beekeeper and not a great beekeeper. It's because the time allocation to beekeeping in my life is a conflict with the desires of things I want to do in beekeeping when I'm striking a compromise. I want to do this, and I want to do that, and well, if you come to know me, I'm always really ambitious to try things, and my overambition becomes my own worst enemy. I kind of find that ironic because in my professional life, I'm mostly neat and tidy. But in my personal life, I'm a little more loose and fast with my aspirations and learn to accept the messiness that comes with that because even though I put myself at risk in some areas, I'm gaining in others by all the experience I get by running more hives. So isn't that a kick in the pants? So put yourself to the test and consider this idea. Sometimes the better way to get a hold of something keep this in your toolbox, is to scale back. Focus on quality, not quantity. Does that mean that I'm going to heed that wisdom? You know, Sharon, who is smarter than me, often tells me I'm doing too much and that I should scale back. But I have unfulfilled desires in beekeeping because, well, there's a Ware hive and a garden hive and other stuff that I want to play with this year coming up. And that bears in mind that I already have seven hives that I'm playing with in service. See, that's the funny thing about me. It's not about the honey or different things, it's about the experience and learning. I want to think, but I know that I am aware that I'm not fooling myself. But I think that I could work smarter and not harder. In some respects, I'm in the gray area. I've taken steps to look at my operation more holistically and address those areas that provide more risk for operational problems. Borrowing from my work-life acumen, I've been more focused on plan-the-work-and-work-the-plan approach. I do think it's improved my beekeeping yard, and the apiary looks as good as it ever has, if I say so myself. Now, does it mean that I will not have failures, or that I have a plan to 100% do things like avoid swarms and stuff like that. I'd be a fool if I said yes, but it is measures better than what I've been doing in the past. I do think it's a fool's errand to think that you could achieve 100% success. I just do. But the thing is, I don't have a guilty conscience because of the hives that I have I'm doing the best effort on them. Could I do a better effort and monitor every single hive and scale back? I could but I also think that I'm doing a pretty darn good job and if I can get those hives through then I'm achieving the same outcome. But you got to have insurance in the plan. You got to know that you may possibly lose hives by doing it this way and if so you need to be able to compensate and the good news is I haven't bought any bees so yeah, but you constantly have to improve your operation and evaluate what you're doing. So this word to you, do consider that sometimes we take on too much and never count out your option to simplify in the aspect of quality over quantity. This is what was going around in my brain. This is, in many respects, a more intelligent way to go. If failure is if not to your liking... As the averages will often yield average results. I guess you got to give it to my brain. It's always going somewhere. It's always heading in some direction and it's got all these things milling around. And yeah, I, I get to share them with you and you get to get what makes me tick. Okay, moving on. Round table number two, I call this one unicorns. So who knew? Just like the Harry Potter movies, I'm here to tell you that there really are unicorns in the world. I wondered out loud in one of my episodes if anyone out there had been listening from the beginning, and like the radio shows, I did get a few response from long-time listeners and first-time callers. So far, two listeners wrote in to tell me that unicorns are not just for fairy tales. Mark Gebhardt and Dan Weldon were around in April 2010 to hear my first introductory episode. My guess is there are more, but I probably wore so many people out long ago that they've either gotten sick of me or lost interest, who knows, but that leads me to say that for every yang there is a yang. Others wrote in to say they just missed the mark and that they have been here since single-digit episodes, so close and deserving a nod. For example, John Brevin, John Bevan, sorry, he started at episode 6, and he did go back to the beginning as he was moving forward to catch up on what he missed. So perhaps some of you have not been around since the beginning, but you're diehards. I've had more than enough people tell me, probably several dozen, which is amazing to me, that they've gone through all the episodes and are fully caught up. Usually when I speak to others about this phenomena, they give me some sort of assessment of the journey, which I find interesting. I love to hear what people think of the whole body of work and what their take was on it. Comments about how things have changed for me, beliefs came and went in the beekeeping practices, The maturity, the struggles, the accomplishments, the failures, and all the things that come with the rest of what a decade of reflection and recording what happened brings. And one key thing that almost always emerges is how much growth there has been. The cool thing, as I sit here today about the tenure of this show, is that, for the most part, I'm as invested today as I was back then. Yes, sometimes I have my downturns, but after a short break away, I yearn to come back and pick up where I've left off. I just keep going. It's that thing that uh, I've heard Bob Kloss say and me say and I've heard Stan Wazatowski say is you just, you learn every single time you go out and you never get tired of it. Zara Northam from the UK was one that mentioned recently, as well as Sue Serkey, that they have listened to all of the shows. Sue told me that she listened once when she was simply interested in beekeeping. And then she started in on a commitment to get hives and she took a beginner's beekeeper course. And now that she has a little more background because she's done a little training and more education, she's going to go back for a second pass. And she communicated to me that she felt like she would understand it more. That's what I call fortitude, if you can listen to it twice oh, wow. The last category comes from those of you who have recently discovered the show and have vowed to go back. I call this category, you can do it, category. That's an homage to the Waterboy movie. I think it was the Waterboy movie. Where was it? The Longest Yard. I don't remember. Andrew Huckberg is one trying to fill the catalog club and started at number one, made it to number 25, and according according to him in a recent email, and I have to say good luck, Andrew, have a good time. I've always wondered if people who listen to that could tell me what some of the best episodes are. I would love to pick little pieces and parts out of the entire catalog and put that together as a best of. So if you have recommendations of ones that stand out to you, that that you think are fun, that made a memorable impression upon you, Kevin at BKCorner.org. Tell me which one you thought it was. So unicorns, they do exist. I'll have to keep these two in mind. And if I ever get around to my t-shirt objective this year, which I do have, these two will have to be on the comp list. So yeah, I finally, after a decade, decided that this is the year that I'm going to try and make up some things to go along with the show. Some tchotchkes. More on that in time, I suppose. And thanks for writing in. Roundtable number three is a tip for melting crystallized honey. I call this one I'll leave the light on. David from Hudson Valley sent me an email about my comments in a recent episode. I think it was the sous vide segment for melting crystallized honey that spoke of the technique for using an old refrigerator with a light bulb on as a heat source to melt honey. His comment was, don't go through the trouble of that because you have a functional equivalent already in your home. Can you think of what it is? The alternative vessel that we have in our home is an oven. And apparently, if you're a yogurt maker, you know this tip already. You can mix up your culture, put it in your oven, turn the bulb on, and it creates a warm enough environment to make your yogurt yogurt. In the case of crystallized honey, you can set it on the racks in your oven, close the door, turn your light on, and it'll get to be about 90 degrees or so is the commentary. I think that it's a good idea. I'm trying it. Literally, right now, as we speak, as I speak, as I record, I have some honey up there. Now, it's been in for a day and a half, and when I open the door, which I did twice, which is a dumb thing to do. So first things first, be patient. Just leave the door closed. Hopefully, you're not going to bake anything for a couple days. Leave your light on. And when you open the door, you'll be greeted with warm air. So what I noticed is it did get to temperature. The glass is warm. And the liquid honey, because some of the uh, jars that I put in had a little bit of liquid and a little bit of crystal. It eased and softened right away. Now it's been a day and a half, and the crystallized honey isn't melted yet. So my guess is... Unlike a sous vide, which would probably work a little bit faster because you could put the temperature at 100, 110, or whatever you want it to be, this is going to take a while. Ideally, you would want it to take about 24 hours, but mine's been in there a day and a half, and it's just warmed up to the point where I think the crystals are melting. So I'm going to think that it's going to take two to three days for this to work, but I am confident that it will work. There's no doubt in my mind And you already have this in your house. So a neat tip, thank you David, from that, and I have to have a Kevin moment. I'll leave the light on. Is a Tom Baudet commentary. He's a spokesperson for Motel 6, which had an ant campaign that suggests that they would always welcome you by the folksy practice of leaving the light on to welcome guests who come in the middle of the night. What I was interested in is learning that he was a spokesperson. I always thought he was like a CEO or chain owner or something of Motel 6. It turns out that he's actually a national public radio NPR on-air personality. Who knew? End of Kevin moment. So it's a cool tip, one that I'm going to try to see how it bears fruit over the next couple days. And thanks for sharing, Dave. Appreciate that. Round table number four. Melee. I saw on Facebook that our friend Sergio from Melovino has a new product line out Melee Lightly Sweetened Sparkling Water. If you're not familiar with Sergio, he's the owner of the first meadery in New Jersey, and his meads have won award after award in competitions all around the world. It's true to say that everything he has produced so far in his business has been first class, and I suspect that these lines of sparkling water are no exception. Not sponsored by Sergio, but I am a fan, and I wish him the best in his new endeavor. It's my belief that sparkling water is going to be the taste that America will gravitate to. In time, it might even be successful as cola, I think. And I've noticed there seems to be a change in tastes as cola has been labeled as evil. Diet colas have been labeled as evil. And if I had to venture an uneducated guess, I think sparkling water is going to emerge as a trend. Kevin Moment. I've been drinking water lately, and I've taken, what is it, uh, Crystal Light, put it in an old Mio container... Mixed it to a high concentration, and I just give that a squirt and I drink that every day with a metal straw. End of Kevin Moment. I would think that Sergio can expand his line little by little, and in time you'll be able to find it at a local grocery store near you. Given its base, and this is key to beekeepers, is real honey. The cost probably is a little higher because honey's not inexpensive as an ingredient, but you want something refreshing and not propped up by fake extracts and concentrates, then this might just be, B-E-E, what you're looking for. I saw on Facebook that he has been making some arrangements with distributors and landed some contracts, so good for him. The way I think about it, we should all applaud people like Sergio who take the risk to go as far as developing a product line with no guarantee for success. One must never underestimate the blood sweat, and tears it takes to get a product to production and do the packaging. And if it has a beekeeping tie, I'm all for it. So best of luck to Sergio in the expansion of his product line. And if you'd like to check out some orange blossom sparkling water with honey, or some raspberry sparkling honey water, or maybe acacia is going to tickle your taste buds, visit the website at drinkmele.com dot com. Mele is M-E-L-L-E. If you ever find yourself visiting New York City or in the vicinity of northern New Jersey, you could also stop by the metery. It's in Vauxhall, New Jersey, which is not too far from Center City, Manhattan. I think it's only really about 15, 20 minutes. You just got to make sure you do some homework in learning how to locate the store as it's a little off the beaten path. You know, I might, now that my brother and his wife are beekeepers, maybe we'll have to take a trip this summer out there. Hmm. It's worth the effort, and every time I've been there, there's quite a few people enjoying the meads and the atmosphere. Melavino is on the web at www.melavino.com. M E L O V I N O. And you can order mead from the website if you're too far away. They have a mead club, or you could pick things up in an ad hoc fashion from the meadery or certain outlets that they have. You're not going to be disappointed. You know, if I could only talk Sergio into sharing a basic mead recipe so I can make some from my local honey. I guess I'm going to have to dream about that, because I have to admit, I have never harbored a notion to experiment making mead on my own. I have this kind of hang-up about it, that I'll never produce anything as good as what Sergio can offer, if ever, without a vast amount of trial and error. I don't have the stomach for it. I do not want to sacrifice perfectly good honey to make swill, which is what I think is going to happen, given little know-how that I have about the whole fermentation process and especially the yeasts and such i mean look it's water and honey but there's yeasts and there's feeding and all that stuff and i just don't know that i could find a reliable source to tell me how to actually do it and come up with a product that i would want to drink still someday i would love to be able to drink a mead from my own honey and have it taste as good as his but for now remains on the bucket list I say never say never, and I keep my eyes open in time. I I might come across the right way to do this. We'll see. We'll see. So good luck, Sergio, with that. Um, I hope it turns out well for you. Roundtable number five. Call this one contemplation. The magic of spring is right around the corner. However, as we sit here in the midst of winter, Time is frustrating, especially for COVID and the fact that we're locked away. It's in the teens outside. They're calling for snow today as I record this. We're going to get maybe a foot of snow or more. And it's just super frustrating. But there's a glimpse of something I want to share with you. I personally can go back to sitting in the plastic chair in my apiary during the specialty wonderful season of the nectar flow and see the bees coming and going if I just close my eyes and go to that happy place. I have to admit the isolation of being home day after day after day due to COVID is wearing on me. I think we're all probably having our moments of wondering if and when the time will come for a proper getaway. Now don't get me wrong, I'm doing okay at home. But I think it's a natural construct in our DNA to see the adventure of the world. And I think a lot of us achieve that by going to places that are not familiar to us. It's a Kevin moment. I always know I'm on an adventure when I'm driving somewhere and I have to follow a GPS to get there. Now, when it comes to New Jersey, I could pretty much drive from New Jersey to Pennsylvania to D.C. to New York and routes in between and i always have a sense of where i am but if i were to go to like kansas never been to kansas before i would truly not be anywhere recognizable and that is a sense of discovery to me i yearn right now to go to some place i've never been in a given moment coming back to center i'm air quotes, stuck here in New Jersey, and when an outing consists of going to the grocery store, well, it seems to me that you simply need to find your own luck. We beekeepers have a secret weapon. It comes back to that moment I described at the opening of this segment. I think we can all relate to that place we can go to, and I wanted to remind you of that. So take a moment and do this with me. Close your eyes. Get quiet. Think of the industrious bees coming and going on a warm and sunny day. The sun is on your face, a light little breeze. Bees are buzzing in the yard. You could hear the noise. Think of those moments where you sat and you watched the bees at the entrance. Yeah, I got my Bob Ross. Maybe you have a happy little cloud right here. <laughs> But you got to get there, right? You got to get there. The point of sharing this is to tell you that legitimately, it's apparently a form of meditation to calm a restless soul by going to your happy place and beekeeping our secret weapon. And ironically, I was reminded of this little moment of solace from Facebook. (laughs) Good old Facebook. There's been this quote being passed around about bee watching being a secret, miraculous medication. It infers that watching the bees is life-changing. We all know that's true. It turns out the quote source is Anthony Williams, somebody who's probably not well-known to the common person, but likely known to millions. Anthony's a medical medium, And he offers pseudo-scientific medical and health advice. And he's authored a number of books on differing topics, including the celery juice craze that swept the nation at one point. The particular quote that I saw was sourced from Mr. Williams. Revised and expanded book, Medical Medium, Secrets Behind the Chronic and Mystery Illnesses and How to Finally Heal. And this is what Anthony wrote in what was in the Facebook quote, quote Bee watching is a secretly miraculous medication. As bees dance from flower to flower, absorbing the sun and distributing pollen along the way, they emit a healing frequency that reverses disease and promotes soul and emotional restoration. Our brain might not comprehend this, but our cells do. This is believed to be the reason why beekeepers have the longest life expectancy of all professions. End quote. Uh, Yeah, okay. I, I think it's a little too squishy for my tastes. And I'm sure that some commercial beekeepers might take issue with the little elaboration on things but it did come to me as a morsel of contemplative meditation and it let me be in my happy place when i made it my own and if it turns out the rest is true then you know we're going to live long and we're truly blessed but to to be funny as to being blessed as beekeepers the rewards are many and that the fact that we can get to that happy place is one of those blessings, and a reward all to itself. Speaking of a happy place, let's move to topics. Topic number one is about propolis, and specifically propolis extracts. One of my goals over the holidays was to finally take the two cups plus of propolis that I had collected and process it for making a tincture. A tincture is loosely defined as a medicine made by dissolving a material in alcohol, and it forms an extract. It's kind of synonymous with a food extract, but it's called a tincture because it's targeted to have a health aspect to it. To be honest, I've made it this far in life without a tincture in my cabinet, so it was not something that I absolutely had to do. The reality is that creation was a touch of making my box bigger. Unlike harvesting honey that you consume, making tinctures and extracts are somewhat novel and maybe not that applicable in everyday life. However, having the knowledge as a beekeeper of another form of a product of the hive is something that I'm interested in. And after looking into it, I have come to recognize that it is far more useful than I had imagined. A Kevin moment. Bigger box. Does that resonate? As we raised our boys, we tried to encourage them to try new things. We always told them that every experience fits into their box of life, and it should be a lifelong quest to make the box bigger. That's what that esoteric reference was. End of Kevin moment. Before I get into the steps followed for processing propolis, I think it makes sense to talk about what its uses are, so you can make the connection. For the bees, they collect it and use it as part of the hive ecosystem. It's normal to see it coating the hive interior surfaces on the frames and in the margins. While it is well established that the bees use it as a coating for hive surfaces, what's probably not that well known is that it's said that small amount of quantities of propolis are mixed with wax to seal the brood cells. If you think about that, one of the chief functions we know is creating a protective envelope throughout the hive. And here, it's at the front door of developing bees because it has antibacterial, antifungal properties. That's kind of cool. It literally is protecting the future population of the colony. I also read recently that it can even tamp down bacillus larvae, the cause of American foul brood, which is something that I was not aware of. Another thing that I was not aware of is that only the western honeybee, Apis mellifera, collects propolis. The eastern or Asian species of honeybee, Apis serrana, does not collect propolis. I find that kind of interesting and wonder how serrana handles immune strategies without it, but I guess that's a topic for another show. Like other products of the hive, the powers of propolis are still being discovered, but they've been known for a long, long time. As I touched on a moment ago, being that propolis is antibacterial, antifungal, and antiviral, and is high in flavonoids and phenolics, it's been used by humans for many of its benefits. Flavonoids, phenolics, they're found in most fruits and vegetables and have been attributed to many of the health benefits you find in a plant-based diet. In human applications, propolis supports the body's natural defenses against upper respiratory tract infections, skin infections, gout, sore throats and other mouth infections, pneumonia, colitis, arthritis, sclerosis, circulatory deficiencies, warts, the healing of minor wounds and, well, you get it, it can be used for just about everything. In use, the forms of propolis used by humans typically are carried by extracts of propolis, which we're going to talk about, and or powders. It's usually used in the most common forms in creams and oils. Cosmetics and dental area are some of the more popular areas where you see it in use. Of course, as beekeepers, we have a few ways to use the product in our own beekeeping management activities. And One of the better known ones is to rub propolis, ...on the inner surface of a hive box or equipment to make it more attractive to bees. This can be done as a tactic to make a brand new hive equipment box more inviting... ...or for swarm traps and other things where you're trying to make it homey, so to speak, for the bees. I honestly don't know if there's anything that smells more like the interior of a hive than propolis when it's on your hands... And I know some beekeepers who simply rub some on their hands in an aromatherapy kind of way. Another way you could do it is just keep it in your car. And on a warm day, the whole interior will smell like a beehive. It's kind of like a little green tree, but honeybee high smelling. You should know, though, that if you're going to consider this, just make sure you keep it from getting on something you don't want it to because it's really complicated and impossible to get out of cloth, and off of certain surfaces. Okay, I'm a little far out on a tangent. Let me come back to processing propolis. Propolis. What way do you say it? I call it propolis. The first thing you need to know is you got to collect some. There's two ways to go conventionally. You collect it along the way, or you collect it on purpose. And that tactic involves using a device. For me, collecting it along the way, I've been collecting propolis for years. I keep two plastic bags, zip-top bags, in my cart at all times. One I put errant wax and the other I collect propolis. And over time, if you do this, you'll find yourself with a reasonable sum. But be forewarned, you've got to look after your stash. If you lose track of it and you leave it out, propolis can get moldy. And to be fair, and for full disclosure, I've thrown out my fair share. <laughs> I guess I've lost track of it and if it turns moldy and it's no good. So you can leave it in your cart for a bit, but you really should make a concerted effort to put it in a container and stash it in the freezer or your fridge to keep it fresh and safe. In my case, and this should be locked in your memory somewhere, one of the greatest opportunities to collect propolis is when you're cleaning frames. Given I did a lot of that last summer, I was able to collect over two cups of it. And this is what I'm referring to when I said, do it on purpose. Whatever way you go about collecting, there's a downside of this approach, as propolis is not as pristine in the manual collecting harvesting as the next method that I'm going to discuss, which is using a dedicated pollen trap. This is the device that I talked about that you can buy to entice the bees to store propolis for you. But it requires a little know-how and cooperation from the bees. The device itself looks like sort of a plastic queen excluder. But the slots in the plastic are different. And if you do hold them up side by side, you can see that it's engineered a little bit differently. This is a Kevin moment. How do I know that? Because I actually happen to have one. One day I was rearranging all my equipment in my garage and I picked up this thing and I looked at it and I said, you know, this looks like a Queen Excluder, but there's something a little off. Why the heck is it? I was going to throw it out. And then I compared it to a Queen Excluder I had by because I was collecting them all and realized what it was, pollen trap. I don't know how I came upon it. And full disclosure, I've never used one, uh, but that's going to change the summer end of Kevin moment. So this is what you do in the fall, fall, when the weather is changing, the bees will be more enticed to close up your openings. You put this over the hive where I said you prop up the outer cover a little bit to let light in and the bees seeing the light and sensing cooler temperatures will go to work to seal all the openings up. It's my understanding that you use this in lieu of your inner cover. So you take your inner cover off, you put this on top of the hive, you leave your outer cover ajar, and with the light shining through, they seal it up. After they do this for you, you swap the inner cover back in, and you take the propolis screen into the home. And to harvest it, you place it in a bag, close it up, and put it in the freezer. Freezing the device causes the propolis to harden and become brittle, And as described, with a gentle little twist, the propolis will mostly dislodge itself, break off, and be collected into the bag itself. Whatever didn't break off, if it's really cold, you could take a hive tool to work off the propolis and get it that way. Just be careful not to bang on the cold plastic or you'll break it. Now, from a pharmaceutical perspective... A propolis screen, or trap as this thing is called that I'm describing, is the better way to go because it results in a cleaner propolis to work with. It's really just propolis. If you think about it, propolis scraped from here and there tends to have other foreign objects in it. You're scraping your frames, you get wood in it, it's got bee parts, wax, dirt, and so on. Propolis with foreign materials can be cleaned, as you'll hear, but for a better base product it's preferable to start with a purer form of propolis if that's the your thing and you're trying to be serious about it use a propolis trap coming back to one final note about collecting propolis i know that there would be a likely tendency to mush it all together as you collect it if you're in the collect 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 process that i described earlier i'm going to tell you to refrain from doing that it will ultimately be a lot easier to process it in, in the process I tell you if you leave it in little pieces and tiny marbles. I made a mistake when I first did this and I kept mushing it together and had this great big huge gobstopper sized ball. And then when I frozen and stiffened it up, well, it was hard to break down and clean. The propolis that I had in bits and pieces from scraping the frames later on was far easier to work with. If anything, the best way to store it is pick the little bits and pieces off and flatten it into small little sheets, wafer sheets, and then you can process it later as you'll hear. Okay, a clean tincture. Now that you have your source material, it's time to prepare it for extraction. I took what I had and put it in a disposable container for processing. For my use, I employed a large Chinese food soup container, like a wonton soup container. Big one. I made it disposable because there's no cleaning it after you're done, so don't choose a good pan or pot out of your pantry. Make sure you're using stuff that you could throw away. I had two cups of propolis in a plastic cup, and I processed it by taking a half cup at a time out and putting it in the Chinese food container. I moved it from my storage vessel to the soup container, and then I poured boiling hot water over it from a kettle. I set to stirring it with a single chopstick until it loosened up and became soft. And trust me when I say this, it took quite a bit of stirring and mixing. But what I ended up with is this kind of slurry of medium brown water and bits of debris floating on the top, which is what you really want. Once it was all stirred up, I let it cool. And what ends up happening is the top solidifies with wax and debris. The technique here takes the advantage of the fact that unwanted debris floats and the propolis, which is denser, sinks to the bottom. I was able to take a butter knife, go around the outside edge, and pull that puck of wax and other collected debris out of the container after waiting 30 minutes or so for it to harden up. And then I repeated the process. I poured more hot water and stirred it, let the stuff come up. In fact, I repeated this routine three to four times for each half cup I processed. One thing that provided a sign as to whether I was done or not was this waxy deposit on the propolis when you poured the water off. Let me see if I can explain this. Every time I pour the water off, I would look down at the propolis resting in the bottom of my container to see if there were little tiny deposits of wax clinging to the propolis. As the mixture is stirred, the wax is stirred out of the mass, but some of it is trapped or still clings in the propolis. When you remove the puck of floating debris off and you pour the water, you'll see these tiny little nodules of wax on top of the propolis. Your objective is to make that go away. If you see it, it's a sign that you need at least one more round of stirring. If I saw them, I added more boiling water and stirred some more. And by taking this measure, I could coax just about all, if not all, of the wax out of the propolis. It should be said that the objective is you really want to be free from any foreign remnants out of the propolis. It needs to be as pure propolis as possible and wax got to go. Propolis products made with propolis that is not clean of wax are considered inferior and they interfere with the extraction to come. Now, when you're satisfied that it's to your liking, pour the water off. And while the propolis is still warm and pliable, I took it and moved it to what I'll call a carrier surface. I use some wax paper. While it's still warm and pliable and being careful not to burn your fingers, push it down into a flat patty. I shaped mine into one-third of an inch thick flat patty that was a little bigger than a typical pancake. And I got two full pancakes out of my two cups of starter material. To give a sense of how much was there, when I weighed it, it came up to 162 grams or three-eighths of a pound. Another way to say that is it's an eighth of a kilogram or just under six ounces. When you flatten the propolis, it's a benefit to you later as the next step is to freeze it, only to then break it up and pulverize it to make a powder. Trust me when I say this, when it's thinner, it's far easier to process for that inevitable step. I left it resting on the wax paper to dry off any moisture before I put it in the freezer. Now the thing is, about propolis at this stage, in the pancake stage, is you could use it just like that. It really doesn't have to be extracted into a tincture or blended into products to be useful. It could be used for a toothache, a sore throat, and other problems. Just purely clean form. In fact, last year I took a pinch of it, and I put it under a band-aid to kill off a wart. I had developing on my finger. I talked about this on the show. I literally took a pinch of propolis, flattened it, stuck it to my skin, and then held it on with a band-aid. Now look, some say you can kill a wart with tape alone, but I will say to you that I know that the propolis did the trick. And simply taping it didn't work for me. After two or three months of just tape, I came across the note that, Propolis kills warts, and voila, I went out to the to the garage, got some propolis, and in short order, the wart was gone. so call me a convert. Now, all this is fine, but the more customary way to use propolis is to grind it into a powder, and then you take it from there, as I said earlier, the powder can be added to oils, it can be added to creams. The most common tactic though is to further extract it. With ethyl alcohol or some other extractant. This comes back to making a tincture. Now, the good thing about propolis is when it freezes, it becomes brittle. And if you did what I did, that is, flatten it into a pancake shaped patty, then the job is super easy, as you can simply just break it up into small, workable pieces with your fingers to get it started. I would think you could almost break it with your fingers, but the better way to do it while it's still frozen, and with a little elbow grease, is to take it to the final form of a pulverized powder by using a mortar and pestle. Now some give their frozen stuff a whiz in a coffee grinder device. That's fine. The thing you should know though is employing this method comes with the typical caveats. Grinding in one of those creates a lot of friction, and friction creates heat. Reheated propolis becomes tacky again, and if you're not careful, you're going to end up with a significant mess of trying to get your propolis out of your whizzer. I have a coffee grinder dedicated to spices, but I didn't go there. I simply crushed it with a mortar and pestle that I had on hand. I took the frozen propolis pancakes, broke off a little piece, crumbled as best I could with my fingers, being careful not to handle it too much and heat it up. And then I put it in the mortar and pestle to mash it up. And I have to say, it turned into a fine powder with very little effort. Now from here, you could take the powder on the next step of the journey. Or you could just store it in powder form for use later in your freezer. For the tincture, just measure out the propolis powder in the right proportion put it in the container you're going to use to pour the grain alcohol over it, stir it up, and let it stew. In time, the alcohol will do its magic to break down the propolis powder and the extract will be dissolved into the liquid. For one to two weeks, store the mixture in a warm place and find time to shake it two or three times a day. When the time is up, strain it or filter it through a fine filter. You want to remove any of the solids and store the extract in a dark bottle and it's ready for use. For the alcohol component, the more conventional recommendation is to use Everclear. That's a brand name for a grain alcohol. Now there's other options out there and unless you cannot get that Everclear where you live and some people apparently may not be able to buy it or they don't want to use that product, Then you have other options. You can use isopropyl alcohol, glycol, for example, water. But the thing is, when you go down the other path, it's not suitable for ingestion, and it can only be used topical. So you have to pick and choose whatever you're going to use to extract. That's why Everclear is usually the universal solvent. When sourcing the alcohol... Look for something that's 70% alcohol by volume or better. The alcohol I used, Everclear, is 95% ABV or alcohol by volume, which is 190 proof. (laughs) It takes me back to the remark that Bob Kloss made recently when we were chatting about this product. It's the only alcohol I've ever seen that has a warning on it about it being extremely flammable. That's a first for me too, but truth be told... I know what burning alcohol smells like as they literally used alcohol for racing fuel in stock cars and when the cars were on the track, you could smell the distinct fumes whenever someone fired up an engine. Now what I would say to you is go for the Everclear. Don't try to substitute something like vodka or gin. I mean, they can produce acceptable results, but they don't have the optimal 70% or better ABV and they're not going to create an end product that's uh, as effective. Lower ABV alcohols don't have the power to get that proper extraction that you need. Now, most guides that I've seen assume you're using Everclear, and as such, they tell you how much of the alcohol to propolis is required. The extractions you can make are different strengths, with the most common ratios that I've seen being scaled at 10%, 20% or 30%. Apparently extractions that employ a higher concentration of propolis to alcohol are less effective, meaning it just does a poorer job at the complete extraction of propolis because the alcohol is overwhelmed. When you mix the proportions of alcohol to propolis, you mix by weight. And it should be noted that if you're not using 70% ethyl alcohol, your weights will be off as different concentrations of alcohol have different gravity or weight, if you will. Now the good news for us is that someone's done the math already, so you can get the desired concentration in the extract. For a 10% extraction, use 900 grams of alcohol to 100 grams of propolis powder. For a 20%, 800 grams of alcohol to 200 grams of propolis powder. And for 30%, which is, I don't know why you wouldn't want to make this stronger one, 700 grams of alcohol to 300 grams of propolis powder. I'm going to provide some links in the show notes to a primer by Ross Conrad on making tinctures and a scale that provides a resource for the weight ranges that I just rattled off. It also has measurements in volumes, that scale, if it's something you prefer. At a Kevin moment, I should give credit to Bob Close where credit is due. Bob made tincture, and as I've said previously, he's the one that got me heading in this right direction and provide me with those resources that I'm sharing with you. So for a period of two weeks after you pour over your alcohol, keep your fledgling extract in a place that's room temperature and agitated two to three times per day. You're really supposed to make sure you keep it in a warm, dry place. After one to two weeks, strain the extract. It's said that soaking longer does not provide any benefits, so two weeks is supposed to do the trick. And to filter it, soak it through a coffee filter, cotton balls, or some other fine cloth. I don't particularly like something like cheesecloth, which ends up with remnants in your product if the threads come through. Now, when you store it, typically means dark glass containers. Often, you know, the little small ones with droppers or sprayers on top, but you could use what you want. And care should be taken to scrupulously clean any of the containers for the filtering bottling process, as you would imagine. Now, what you end up with is a clear liquid, free of particles, and it might have a dark brown or slightly reddish hue. Clear meaning clear particulate matter, not clear looking, by the way. There was a footnote that you could get an extraction that is more potent through a stupid simple process. Is just leave the lid off. Leave the lid off the jar for a few hours and allow some of that alcohol to evaporate and you'll end up with a more concentrated extraction. Now, I hesitate to have to say this, but seriously, don't forget to put the lid back on, or you'll end up with a dried sludge and waste your entire effort. Once it's complete, place the extraction in a dark place to prevent life from getting to the tincture. And like anything of this ilk, if you keep it in a cool, dark place, it'll last forever. Now, for various reasons some might want and an alternative measure for the extraction that doesn't employ alcohol. You can use oil, an oil extraction process, or even water if that's desirable. For an oil extract, mix 10 grams of clean propolis with 200 milliliters of a carrier oil, something like olive oil, almond oil, or even butter. Now, Presumably, if you want to take it in orally, (laughs) you're going to choose something that's edible. You take it and you heat whatever the oil is in a water bath for about 10 minutes. Make sure it's not over 120 degrees or 50 degrees Celsius. You're going to add your propolis and stir it the whole time. When it's finished, strain it and add it to a bottle. And this mixture should be refrigerated because, of course, oil can go bad in due time and you don't want it to go rancid on you. Now as to water, or what is termed an aqueous extract, you just simply soak the propolis in water, and or boil it like in the first step. I can note that when I was cleaning the propolis of foreign material, the water I poured off was brown and had a propolis odor. I suppose I could have actually filtered that water and kept it, but I decided that since I was making the real thing, the extract, I discarded it. It did resemble a weak tincture, and I suppose that if you let that evaporate out some, it would have become more concentrated. Um, I did read that during that process, people actually do save that off, and they use that as the first version of propolis tincture, and they drink it in their tea and do all that other stuff. Yeah. So now that you have a tincture, what do you want to do with it? Some things to consider. You add your tincture to a Vaseline ointment, stir it in, and then you can use it for various reasons, you know, put it on a burn and so on. You can mix it in oil and butter lotions, oral and nasal sprays, suntan lotions. You can make propolis honey syrups, like a food product. People do take the powders and make tablets out of them. They put propolis in their shampoo. They put it in their toothpaste. And, of course, creams, facial masks. I think you get the picture. There's a good number of products at your disposal. Now, I talked earlier about just taking the powder and storing it in the freezer. Beyond tincture, my plan is to make a propolis paste out of some of my stock. And maybe I'll be putting it in my lip balm. But that's for another show. So, propolis. That was long, I know, sorry. I was a little detailed, but I wanted to make sure I gave you everything you needed in one place. I think it's kind of cool. I had a lot of fun playing around with this. I'm curious if you've ever made it. Send me a note if you know anything different than I came up with. And let me know if you plan to make it. Put it on your to-do list this year. Collect Propolis to go do this. Look for some links in the show notes. And if you have anything that you think is wrong or misstated here, let let me know that too. I'm curious to I don't know a lot about this uh, thing. It's new to me, so if you have insights that I don't know about, share it along. Okay, let's move along. Topic number two: neonic circadian rhythms. I call this one sleepy and grumpy. I am, by and large, a pretty steady guy. My mood is fairly amiable most times, and Sharon has suggested I'm the most flatlined person she knows. Never too excited about things, just moving along. There are times, however, that I find that I am not my best. And like the worst of the seven dwarfs, I find myself to be sleepy and grumpy all at the same time. Like just about everyone else, it has to do with change in sleep patterns. A study out of the University of Bristol, UK, has found that certain products of Neonic class of pesticides is interfering with the circadian rhythms of honeybees and fruit flies. And as such, exposure may potentially impair honeybee navigation, time memory, and social communications. The study I'm going to talk about was done on the Vanderbilt campus using conventional, at least to us in the U.S., 10-frame Langstroth hives with Apis mellifera linguistica bees. Linguistica, inferring to the subspecies of the western honeybee that originates from the continental part of Italy, it's commonly called the Italian bee, as you could imagine. The finding is suggesting that neonics, specifically the ones that they had to test, clothianidin and thiamethoxam, are disrupting circadian rhythms and sleep by abherent stimulation of click neurons. As is well established, the foraging capabilities of a colony are essential to its operation and survival. If foragers cannot perform optimally, the food supply is placed in jeopardy. Behind the claim is a study conducted where foragers were fed bee candy laced with the neonex mentioned in concentrations that are reported in flower nectar and pollen via previous studies. The researchers combined observational studies of sleep patterns of bees that were fed either a control or bee candy with neonics, measuring it over a period of time in light and dark experiments. More on that in a second. They noted that the bees used were not exposed to pesticides from the location of the study, meaning Vanderbilt, and that they did not show detectable levels of the two test products, thiamethoxam and clothianidin, when they were sourced for the beginning of the study. Beyond the observations reported, the research did perform analysis on the brains of the control bees and study bees to conclude their findings. The circadian cycles used for analysis were gauged at a minimum four-day observational trial for light-dark experiments and a five-day minimum for the constant dark or constant light experiments that made up the study. So it's kind of important that you understood that they did three different things. They did a situation where they put bees in a combination light and dark scenario, that they controlled. They did a situation where they had them in the light and never turned the lights off, and had them in the dark and never turned the lights on. They observed, quote, ingestion of neonics completely disrupted locomotor circadian rhythms in significant portion of the bees, including arrhythmic behavior in an increased proportion of bees in a dose-dependent manner, end quote. They did report that a small percentage, 12% was the number cited, of controlled bees exhibited this pattern and arrhythmic locomotor behavior, but when compared to the neonic food fed bees, the reports were much higher in that class. To understand that in simple terms, What was expected didn't occur. The arrhythmic locomotor behavior is described as lacking of rhythm or regularity. That's what it equates to. Uh, Kevin Moment. I want to ask you, did you have you ever observed this? You can find bees sleeping in a hive. I've seen it. And after I've seen it, I've seen it all the time. So once you know what it looks like, you can spot it. To learn what it looks like, you got to take the time to observe what the colony looks like when you first open the lid. Especially if you have excess honey supers on top that they're not doing too much on. You will see bees that look, well, to to describe it differently, dead. (laughs) But they're certainly alive. They're off in the margins of the hive. Maybe occasionally you'll see the antenna twitch slightly. I tend to notice this more in the afternoons. And for me, the first place that I've explicitly seen this was my flow hive. Not really, but especially in my flow hive. And I'll explain to you what that means. You see, the bees didn't show much interest in going into my flow hive to store honey. Instead, they were kind of always up there loitering, if I could call it that, because that's a good way to describe it, because when you look at the observation window in the side, the flow hive has a a glass window where you can see into the frame, you simply see bees that are frozen in time. The truth is, they're sleeping. (laughs) It's quiet, no bees are bumping into them up there, you know, in, in the top of the hive, you think they're dead, but the truth is they're sleeping. If you come back in time, they've moved on. And they're not dead, of course. They were just taking a siesta. So I would say to you, just open up your hive, and before you extract that first frame or you look at the bottom side of your inner cover or whatever, just maybe near the top edge of a frame you'll see a bees that aren't moving. Everybody else is kind of checking out what's going on, they're peeking up, looking at you, but over in the corner there's somebody who's frozen in time. Chances are they were sleeping. There's a certain look to it. And you'll notice whether the sleeping bees were twitching or quiescent. Um, yeah. And this is this akin to this arrhythmic locomotor behavior that they're reporting here. End of Kevin moment. So how much did they see? Quote... Nearly half the thiamethoxin-dosed and clothianidin-dosed bees lost circadian behavioral rhythms following consumption of these neonicotinoids, end quote. The report was 46% was the measurement for the thiamethoxin food and 42% for the clothianidin-dosed food. Remember, that's in contrast to the 12% of the controls. It went on further to say, quote, In addition to disrupting honeybee locomotor circadian rhythms in many individuals, neonicotinoid ingestion also dramatically altered the rhythmic behavior of the dosed bees that remain rhythmic, end quote. In the makeup of the study, they placed bees in different conditions. As I said before, some light, some dark, constant light, and full darkness. It turns out that doing these variations of light patterns did yield an observation when it comes to the bees that were fed neonics. They found that, quote, the effects of neonicotinoids on honeybee circadian rhythms are enhanced by light input, end quote. I'm going to state this backwards, but give me a little leeway on this. The first thing to recount is that they found that in the fully dark experiments where bees were not shown light at all, completely dark day and night for the full run, they were not impacted. They stated, quote, In the absence of light cycles, neonicotinoids did not significantly disrupt honeybee circadian rhythms at similar exposure levels, end quote. Now the reason I started with the statement, instead of in the light experiments, that I'm going to talk about next, is to point out, it's an interesting thing. It's not applicable. Bees don't live in the dark. They live in, well, a farger needs to go out of the hive, and therefore it will be exposed to light. I think we all understand that. The fact, however, that they can demonstrate that in complete darkness there's no impact makes the connection that light sensitivity plus the intake of neonics is what leads to the undesired sleep patterns and it's a result of the mechanism of action for neonics and how they're impacting the honeybee. So now we could take a look at the light exposure, which is the real world, the way it works, and the finding was, quote, the presence of light cycles or constant light Neonicotinoids induce loss of circadian B behavioral rhythms in a dose-dependent manner, end quote. I'm going to purposely stop here and suggest that if you want to know more, then just look in our show notes for the link to the study. Like a customary paper that documents findings, they outline the study design, the methods, conditions, all kinds of relevant details to support the work. Over the course of producing the show, I've seen the lens of focus on neonics and the impacts. Of course, they chose a neonic as a pesticide because the whole point of it is to kill bugs, right? But the thing is, was it tested properly for unintended consequences? Over the course of producing the show, I've seen the lens of neonic impacts to honeybees ebb and flow. They banned him in Europe, but there's no great cry that there was so much of a better situation. Still using him in the United States, who knows whether it's really having an impact or not. But the one thing that's remained constant, just not abated, is the focus on neonics and trying to answer that quandary. Are they really causing systemic problems or not? I suspect in time that enough evidence will mount to move governments to take action, recognizing, of course, that the EU has already done that. And in the United States, I think, somewhere in the background, Big Ag possibly knows that this is coming. But what I've heard is that they're working on other products that will eventually take the place of Neonix, and then at that time they'll declare what they do or don't know. Or they'll just move on citing this is a better product and the world moves on. I don't have time for all this conspiracy theory stuff. But, uh, yeah, I would have suspected that the first runs at Neonix would have worked. But Big Ag is powerful and we have to feed the world. Ultimately, I'm hoping that the balance of nature could stand whatever uncertainty there is. Sorry, that's a little too much editorial. But that's the reason why I stopped going down the rabbit hole with this report. I just wanted to let you know it's out there. And if you're interested in digging in and learning about the methods and whatever, go take a look. What I know about these things is there's two sides to every coin. If I were somebody defending Neonics, and there are defenders of them out there, saying they're better than other things that could potentially be in there, I could tear this study apart with credibility and then there would be a whole ream of people lined up on the other side of the aisle saying this study really needs to be looked at and means something. I'm not smart enough. As an individual beekeeper and a non-scientist, non-chemist, non-whatever, I just love bees and I'm hoping that if the scientists have this right that somebody pays heed because sleep for all creatures, is probably instrumental to their being. And, yeah, I'll just leave it at there. Topic number three. I'm going to do it again. Sorry. I probably wore you out earlier. But I promise this one won't be bad. It's about a pollen extract. Made from bee bread. Did you know there was such a thing? During the holiday break, I made a pollen extract along with the propolis. And as detailed as it was to discuss the propolis version of this, pollen extract is really simpler. Now, it started this way. This summer, I had some frames of pollen that came out of a hive at my disposal. And I painstakingly cut the comb out of the frame, meaning around the square. And then I laid it flat on a table and using a bread knife I sliced through the comb at the back rib and that ended up with an open grid of cells. A matrix, so to speak. If you held it up, you could see through it kind of thing. have to use a very sharp bread knife for this. So basically I sliced the cells off the center wall on both sides and then I put some music on and with a single chopstick I poked out every one of the bee bread pellets from each and every cell. When I was finished with two frames, I had a good cup and a half of bee bread pellets in a plastic jar. A Kevin moment. I could still taste it. I could conjure it up like before. You can't help while you're doing this, but pop a few of these morsels in your mouth. And when you're doing it, you get the tastes that come with a single pellet. You get the pollen, which is a little pasty and pollen <laughs> That's a word. They have a little tart citrusy note, and then you get a little sweetness. The tangy note is not unlike the tang of a yogurt, which I guess you could imagine since the fermentation process. And when you pull the plug out, If you hold the plug in your fingers and you lick one end, the end that was facing out to the world, you get a little sweetness. They almost look like a little pencil eraser. That sweetness is the honey, so that's how I know they coat it with honey to encapsulate it. If you turn it over and you bite the back end off, you get pollen. And if you get the layer under the honey and above the pollen, you get the tart part. That's how it seems to be. And what was cool is the ones that I popped out were green, tan, orange. Some were lemon yellow. Some were neon red orange. There were some uh, small few red ones. That's how I know it was coated with honey when I licked the one end but not the other end. End of Kevin moment. So the product that you get from popping these out is super clean and ready to go for extraction right away. You simply just put this bee bread in a clean jar and you had Everclear in a ratio of 1 to 4. One part brie bread and four parts Everclear. The recipe that I looked at said use 95% alcohol. Since I had Everclear, that's what I poured over. The notes I say talked about how much more agitation improves the extraction. And so I've had this gig <laughs> for Sharon and I to give it a shake every time we go buy it. It's sitting up on a shelf in our kitchen. And it says that you should extract it for eight days to get the full essence of it. After eight days, when I open the lid and smell it, I smell the alcohol very strong, but I also start to smell the pollen. Now I I've been I joined a Facebook group for extracts over the holiday, not me Sharon, she bought vanilla beans from Madagascar or someplace and she's making a vanilla extract. She saw Ina Garten do this and got down this kick. We both joined an extract group, and one of the things I know about different extracts that you make is some of them you could put the product in and the longer it goes, the more it steeps. And others, like when you're making a mint one, you use the mint for a couple days and then you take the mint out and you swap out and put more mint in it. I'm not sure what's supposed to happen with pollen. I'm not sure after eight days you're supposed to clear it. That's what the recipe called for and strain it and use it that way. I think that because pollen is so hard that the longer it sits in there, the better it will be. So I left it in there. After eight days, I continued to shake it. I think it's been about two weeks now. What I've noticed is the liquid in there smells more like pollen and is yellower every time we shake it. And I actually took a couple pictures of it in the beginning so that I could see and judge whether or not it's better. And it's better. It's darker. Now, I don't know if somewhere along the line it's going to go bad or rancid. I don't want to end up with botulism or something. But but I think we're okay here, right? So, cool. Like propolis tincture, you do the same thing with it. Filter, store it the same way. And if anybody's ever made this before and has any guidance to me as to whether I'm going to die of botulism or something because I've over-extracted it, you let me know. (laughs) Otherwise... I think we're good to go. And what a cool product to have. Now, what would you do with it? The same way that you want to take pollen for health. People take pollen supplements and all this other stuff. But instead, you use this. You could put it in your tea. And I would think you're actually getting the true nutrition value out of whatever the pollen is because it's being deconstructed through the extract. Unlike pollen that you take by mouth, which a lot of people will say to you does not digest because... Your digestive juices can't break the pollen down. The alcohol's done it for you. Now, I'm not a medical doctor, can't claim blah, 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 but people who do talk about this say that this is a better way to take in pollen. So pollen extract. If anything, go cut yourself a frame next summer if you get one and just pop a couple of those beet bread things in. You'll enjoy it. I promise. That's all we had on the pile, so let me go to the local hive report. Of course, being wintertime, there's nothing physical to report at this time, but I want to talk about a couple dynamics. First thing to say is, it's an anxious time of year. Philosophically, I think this is always the toughest time of year for me. Yeah, I've been doing it for a number of years and it doesn't get any easier. I search my soul for the evidence that gives me confidence of the prospects of each hive to make it through to spring. Many times, instinctually, I know that a single particular hive will make it through, and other times, I'm surprised at the outcome that the hive makes it through. Each and every hive is like a little experiment, which I have a... Yeah, it's almost like gambling, (laughs) you know? You know, you, you kind of weigh your odds. I did peek at the two hives that had broodminders, and I know that they're alive. Every year I focus in on my spidey sense and think about the hives that are most likely to cause concern. And I rank them in order, and at the top of my list this year is my top bar. The top bar had a moderate amount of bees and a moderate amount of stores. The second hive on the hip parade is the cedar hive, but for different reasons. That hive has an incredible amount of resources. I stopped feeding it earlier than all the rest because it had frames and frames of stores. If I fed it more in the fall, late summer, early fall, I would have pushed the brood nest out. But what I don't have is a good sense of the number of bees in there. I want to hope that it had a good-sized cluster, but because I didn't have to feed it, I didn't go into it late in the season, so all I could do is surmise its population by the entrance of what I see coming and going. Now, whatever the case, we usually know the score by March. And as we're crossing into February, we only have 28 days more of uncertainty. Yeah, some people say that bees start to brood up, and we know that from the brood minders, in February. But I don't call that a guarantee. My rule of thumb is when the hive crosses into March, it will carry on into spring. That's not to say that it does. Some hives, for whatever reason, they need a possible bridge, an intervention, or something... But at least what happens in March is it affords you the opportunity to do some emergency feeding. Now, let me explain that a little better. In February, it's still cold. And the majority of time, from February to March, it's going to stay cold throughout. You might have a warm day if you're lucky. By the time March comes to April, you tend to have more warmer days, and you could do whatever you need to do to emergency feed or manipulate or do whatever but there are those years when from march to april it's cold cold all all through that period which means winter is really extended it's almost like whether the groundhog saw its shadow or not yeah okay so there's not much you can do about it but there is one thing you should be doing this time of year that's what i want to talk about you should keep your entrances clear I spoke to my twin Keith the other day, and he shared with me that the lower entrance of their hive was littered with hundreds of dead bees. I hear that, and it makes me do the math, trying to figure out while I'm talking to him on the phone if his hive is in trouble. Here's what I know. The cluster in their hive, the last time I looked at it, was immense. 30,000 bees and maybe more going into winter. To lose a few hundred bees is not concerning when the population is in the tens of thousands. The key thing is that he cleaned up his bottom board. So please, go out to your hives and make sure your lower entrances are clear. Now, in his case, there's an insurance policy as he has a small opening at the top of his hive as the contingency. So even if the bottom was fully plugged, he'd still be okay. I went out last week and peeked into the entrance of every hive to ensure the entryways were not plugged. Every one of them was clear. You should take the time to do this each week. Now, what's interesting is as I sit here, it's snowing outside, and we're supposed to get maybe a foot or more. You'll know whether your hives are alive if you go out after it snows and you see that it's going to melt because the inside of the hive is warmer than the ambient air most times and usually you start to see some of the snow melt. Switching gears, last topic for this one. I'm gonna make a change. I have to relocate the bees on my property. And it's a big task. If you've ever seen any of the videos I post of my yard, you'll know that my hives sit on the edge of our property and recently the property next door went up for sale. Given the uncertainty of who will be there and what the situation will be come spring, we don't know whether the property will be sold, whether it will still be for sale, who's going to buy it, whether they're bee-friendly or not. I'm going to take a proactive measure to move our bees to a location more internal to our property. I have a small window, as you can imagine, to get this done. And on any of the weekend days coming up, My task is, where the ground is not frozen, to prep the plot that I picked out, which is behind our garage. I started already by surveying the area on a sunny day to see if I could rationalize what was the next best alternate to the property uh, location that we have currently. Sharon and I walked the property to, you know, see if we could figure out which Place would be the best. We discussed the pros and cons, primarily where the sun was. In retrospect to the morning. Yeah, I found a place. I cleared some leaves. I took a look at the ground below and I'm mostly happy with the spot we chose. I do have one concern and it's that the bees will leave the entrance and fly over our driveway, over our vehicles. I'm really hoping (laughs) that their cleansing flights doesn't mean they'll be bombing our cars we always leave our vehicles parked in the garage but if we have neighbors over or we have cars outside or whatever on a good sunny day you ever try and clean bee poo off a car really hard to do and a lot of times it actually damages a vehicle so i'm still kind of thinking that through no matter what the place that we chose is not the ideal place because well our property is shaded But such is the characteristic of our property. Even where the bees are right now, they don't get that first-of-morning sun. It has to come up over the wooded lot next door. And, well, you know, such is the characteristic of our property is we have a wooded lot with dozens and dozens of mature 100-plus-year-old trees, and it's all shady. The spot we picked out has the best morning sun available. That's really kind of what made the final decision. We would love nothing more to buy the property next door and make it a B, Nirvana field. But there's annual property taxes to consider and it's just not in the cards. So hopefully we'll end up with good neighbors. This is kind of a surprise because it wasn't in the plans. And some of the other priorities that I had planned for have to be pushed aside to focus on this effort. But as the world turns, life proceeds. So Local Hive Report, as far as I know, everything's still ticking, and I'm looking forward to February flying by as fast as January did. I can't believe that it's the 31st of January ready. That just amazes me. So Local Hive Report, check. Still doing okay. If this brings this episode to a close, don't really have anything newsworthy to talk about in closing comments, so I'll just... Stop it here. Like our beloved bees, when beekeepers go together, we accomplish great things. Thanks for listening, everyone, and be well.